This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reform views based on the Word of God and the Reform Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read from God's Word this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, first of all, and then we turn to Matthew chapter 25, Ephesians chapter 1, first, these two passages are in line with the two parts of our confession of faith which the Catechism is explaining in the Lord's Day we consider this morning. The first passage applying to the words that He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, find that in Ephesians 1. And then Matthew 25, we read a parable of Christ regarding the confession, from thence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. We read in Ephesians 1 first, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. Ephesians 1, verse 15, hear the word of God. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now we turn to Matthew chapter 25, where we find... A parable regarding the last judgment. Matthew 25, we begin reading at verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. We read through the end of the chapter. And when the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the, on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger, and he gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and he gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and he took me not in. Naked, and he clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and he visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as he did it not to one of the least of these, he did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. We read that far in God's holy and inspired Word on the basis of Scripture. We turn now to the Catechism in Lord's Day 19. Lord's Day 19 explaining the truth of Christ's sitting at the right hand of God and coming again to judge the quick or living and the dead. Page 11, Lord's Day 19. Why is it added, and sitteth at the right hand of God? Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that He might appear as head of His church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ, our head, unto us? First, that by His Holy Spirit He pours out heavenly graces upon us, His members. And then, that by His power He defends and preserves us against all enemies. And what comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior's name is to be exalted 
You are to give Him honor and praise, adoration and blessing as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. That is your primary goal in life now and unto all eternity. In Revelation 5, the 10,000 times 10,000 of angels bow before Him and say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then all of the saints, together with all creatures in that new heavens and the new earth, respond likewise. This is the great purpose of all things and of Christ's work. His exaltation. I remind you of that familiar goal of all things because we tend to be very self-focused and can easily forget that goal even as we contemplate the work of Jesus Christ. One of the tendencies of our human nature in our self-focusedness is to ask and to focus only upon what's in it for me. When Christ was crucified, when He was risen and He ascended and and He sits at God's right hand, what's in it for me? What's my benefit? What's my profit? And that is a proper question. The catechism has been asking that question and answering it again and again. What's the benefit of the resurrection, ascension, and now the sitting at God's right hand? But that's not the only question. What's in it for Christ? It's His glory. His benefit, His honor, that is most important. If we stop at what's in it for me, then we become like spoiled children who begin to imagine that it's all about us. We make ourselves God and then make God and Christ our servants instead of the other way around. Beloved, the goal is not merely to give you benefits. The end is not your glory, first of all, and mainly. It is that you might be filled with the fullness of salvation unto the praise and honor and exaltation of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Catechism instructs us on the different stages of Christ's exaltation. That's what it's called. His resurrection, His ascension, His sitting at God's right hand, and His coming again to judge the living and the dead. These are the steps or stages in His exaltation. This is what He deserves. This is what He is worthy of. Having finished the work through His life and on the cross, He, not us, but He alone is entitled to this exaltation. And He graciously brings us with Him who are undeserving unto this glory. We are to exalt Him. We are to serve Him. That ought to be the goal in our life. And to those who do not, to those who refuse to honor Him and who would prefer willfully and impenitently, to keep on making life all about you. About yourself. 
then you have to be warned. That's part of what we consider this morning. You have to be warned that this Christ, who alone deserves all honor and glory, is coming again and will soon judge the living and the dead. And He will say to many, as Matthew 25 indicates, Depart from Me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He is soon to make that final judgment, which is fearful and ought to be fearful to all those who willfully walk in sin and thereby show that they do not believe. There are many, even some in the church, who show by their impenitent selfishness that this will be their judgment. But to you you who turn in true repentance and faith, there is comfort. There is even a longing for this last judgment where Christ will be exalted and His people with Him. As the Catechism says, with uplifted head I look for the very same person who before offered Himself for my sake to the tribunal of God, to His people, in whom He works, repentance and faith. The judge will say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. We consider the truth of Lord's Day 19 under the theme, Our Ruling Head and Returning Judge. Two main points, His rule and then His return. His rule as the one who sits at God's right hand and then His return to judge. On the third day after His death, we have seen He rose, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Forty days after His resurrection, Jesus Christ, our Savior, ascended into heaven. And at His ascension, forty days after His resurrection, He was given a position to sit at the right hand of God. At His ascension, when He was given that position, we can say that's in the past tense. He did sit. He sat at God's right hand. But notice significantly that in our confession of the Apostles' Creed and in the explanation of the Catechism, there is the present tense of the word sit. Sitteth is the Old English for sitting. He is sitting, we are saying. Think about that tonight as you confess the Apostles' Creed. He is, present tense, sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. In the past tense, historically He rose. In the past tense, historically, He ascended and sat. But presently, right now, as we speak, as we are listening to the sermon, as we are confessing our faith, He is sitting at God's right hand. And that's where our eyes look. Whenever we think about Jesus Christ, not only historically in the past, we look up because He is presently and personally sitting at God's right hand. He's really there, you know, children. This is not just something in the Bible that we read like a myth or a storybook. He is really there. And your faith must be directed upward to Him who is sitting at God's right hand. 
That he sits at God's right hand is a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech to describe his headship or his rule. Think about the word sit, for instance, or is sitting. Jesus is in heaven, but he is not literally always physically sitting while he is in heaven in that position, the physical position of sitting. In Acts 7.55, we have one example where Stephen, as he was stoned as a martyr, saw Jesus standing, standing. That Jesus is sitting does not mean that he's always in a physical sitting position. He's very active. He's moving above, in heaven above. Thus I say it's a figure of speech when we say he is sitting at God's right hand. Think also about the concept of God's right hand. God is spirit. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is not limited by space. And if He is everywhere in heaven, and He is everywhere on this earth, then He doesn't have a physical, spatial location of a right hand. The point is not a a literal expression, but a figure of speech to describe Christ's position of honor. This position of headship. So think about the picture for a moment. Think of someone on this earth like Joseph, who in many ways was like Jesus. Joseph who was despised by his brothers. You remember, children. Joseph who was so hated by his brothers that they sought to kill him and then sold him to the Egyptians. Joseph then who was thrown into the dungeon because he was framed by Potiphar's wife. Joseph who then was brought out of prison after telling the meaning of the dreams was raised to Pharaoh's right hand. And the Bible doesn't say this explicitly, but there was probably a ceremony. Often there are ceremonies when someone is exalted to a high position of power. And in that ceremony, there is a positioning, even a physical positioning of, of Joseph or someone important on the right hand of Pharaoh or the, or the king on a throne there. And even a crowning. But Joseph didn't stay seated on that throne. Joseph got up and worked during those seven years of plenty, you remember? He went about Egypt so that he might gather much for the coming years of famine. And the point is that his physical sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh was also a figure, a symbolic way to show that Joseph became the right-hand man of Pharaoh. He received not just a physical position, but he received a position of honor and power. So also with Christ. When he ascended into heaven, we can think of a coronation where the Son of God was given a position. He was crowned as the right-hand man of God. So the Ephesians 1, verse 20 describes that. End of verse 20 says, He set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And then we find after that a description of what it means that he was set at God's right hand. 
far above all principality, referring to angels and even fallen angels, and power and might and dominion, every king and lord. And every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that, that which is to come, His name is honored above all names, and has put all things under His feet, and given, gave Him to be head over all things to the church. That's the explanation of what it means with that figure of speech, that He is sitting at God's right hand. The key word is head. He's the head over all. He is head. The Catechism uses that same word because Christ has ascended into heaven for this end that He might appear as head. Head of His church by whom the Father governs all things. And now we develop that idea of headship to properly understand the headship of Christ we must distinguish between two ways in which He is head or rules as head. First, He is the gracious ruler. He rules by His grace as head. And secondly, His headship includes His sovereign rule. He rules by His providence or perfect sovereignty and control. First, consider how he is head as the gracious ruler. That's how the catechism especially uses the word head. He is head of his church, we read. He's head of his church. And in, 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 in that phrase, we find that familiar illustration again that the catechism often uses and the Bible often uses of how Christ is, is like the head of a human body. And the church, we members of the church, are the, the body parts of a human body. That's the illustration. Ephesians 1.23 makes that clear when it speaks of the church, which is His body. That means, beloved, that as, as, since Christ is the head and we are the body parts, there is what is called an organic connection between Christ and you, each of His body parts. There is a, a, a link, a, a bond of life so that from Christ above in heaven there flows into each of His people very really many, many, many blessings. His very life. And that's what the catechism is further explaining in the answer, answer 51, when it says, by His Holy Spirit He pours out heavenly graces upon us His Members or body parts. Through the bond of faith, because there is an organic connection between us and Christ, He rules in this way. He sends His Spirit and His blessings through that bond to us. He fills us by His power and brings into us joy, peace, love, holiness, prayer, good works, and every blessing, every spiritual blessing from heavenly places. It's how He rules. In His love, He sweetly and He powerfully bends your heart to want to worship Him, to want to come to church, to want to pray, to want to obey. 
even when the feelings are contrary, to decide to choose to will to do what He wants. That's what He works in us to do. This is His gracious rule in the hearts of the members of His church. And then secondly, we say there's a distinction. Jesus is exalted as head also in the sense of being a sovereign ruler. When He is brought to the right hand of God, He not only graciously rules through a living connection with His people, but He rules by His sovereignty. His power. The Catechism means that when it says, by whom the Father governs all things. Notice, not only is He the head of the church, but by whom the Father governs all things. In other words, people of God, when, when Jesus was exalted to God's right hand, God the Father told the Son in, in our human nature, He says to Jesus as one who is fully God and fully man, He says, I turn over providence to you. You handle providence, Jesus. You now rule over all creation, all beasts, all birds, all plants, all planets, not only over the elect, but also over all the reprobate, over all good angels and all evil angels. You take over the sovereignty, the sovereign rule over all things. And that's what Ephesians is especially emphasizing in verse 22 and hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church. What a precious phrase. The, 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 word, the words to the church, that prepositional phrase is something called a, a dative of advantage in the original language. A dative of advantage. Which means He is head, a sovereign over all things, to the advantage of His church. Over all principalities and powers, over every creature, over all things, without any exception, to the advantage of His church. That's His sovereign rule. As head, we said, He is the gracious ruler in the hearts of His people. And as head of God's right hand, He sovereignly rules over all things for the sake of His people. We need to distinguish between these two ideas because it's important to point out a couple of errors that, that easily mixes the, these, these two ideas up, these two truths up, and, and, and brings the church to very, very serious problems. One error that we have to guard against and that this doctrine fights against is that error of common grace. When Jesus Christ rules as the sovereign ruler over all things, now in charge of providence, we must know that this is not in grace for every single person that He sovereignly rules over in His providence. When Jesus causes the sun to shine today too, when He causes the beauty of creation to come forth and the, and the blooming of flowers today too. When you see the rain fall and, and you hear every song of every bird, the wonder of it is this, the positive is this, 
That's Christ's love demonstrated to us. Take notice of it all. Every bit of it is Christ sovereignly governing all things to tell us, I love you. Here's another token of my love. Marvel at that. And then, and then know the negative too, which makes grace all, all the more special. That when He governs over unbelievers who are not His people, when He governs all creation, and the beauty of it, it's not to love them. It's not grace to them. When He's sovereign over devils, and the legion of devils we considered last week, and evil spirits, and abusers, it's grace to us, to the church we read, but not to them. Let me ask a foolish question that it draws this out. Is he, is he gracious to the devil when he is successful, so to speak, in bringing falls? Is he being gracious to Hitlers as they feast on good things? in order to have energy to persecute God's people? Is He being gracious to false teachers and persecutors and abusers when they successfully use the good gift of their intelligence to harm His children? And you know the answer to that. He graciously rules over us. His people, undeserving. His grace is particular. And then the second error besides common grace to avoid is that of the Arminians and their doctrine of free will. And along with that, free offer. When He sends His Holy Spirit, He talked about His gracious rule in the hearts of His people. The Arminian teaches that He does this also in the reprobate. That He works a, a grace, a certain kind of grace, making it available in the hearts of His people, and then leaves it up to them to choose or not to choose by their free will so that salvation ultimately depends on man. That's not how Christ works. The truth of Christ's gracious rule is that in, in particular, he works only in His people. And when He works graciously in the hearts of His people, by His gracious rule, He will irresistibly and powerfully bend their wills to turn unto Him into repentance and faith and a godly life. Such is the headship of Christ. Graciously ruling in the hearts of His people, and sovereignly ruling over all things for us. That's what He has been exalted to do. The Catechism now points us to two specific benefits about Christ's headship. Now, there are many, many benefits we can point to for application here, but notice now, in order to get to the main applications, the Catechism speaks of two main benefits of His exaltation to God's right hand. First, the Catechism speaks of 
heavenly graces. It's a beautiful phrase. Heavenly graces. By His Holy Spirit, He pours out heavenly graces upon us as members. Graces, there in the plural, doesn't refer to different graces in the sense of common grace and and particular grace. No. But graces there refers to many gifts that He gives to His people. And only to His people. Different kinds of gifts, even unique gifts, that He works in the hearts of His people. All unmerited and undeserved. That's why it's called grace. To every member, to to you, each of you, or His people, He gives graces, gifts. Some gifts He gives to all. He gives the Spirit to all. He gives the fruits of the Spirit to all. He gives the ability to believe and to obey to all of His people. But then there are other unique gifts that He gives in varying degrees, some to some and not to others. So that within the church of Jesus Christ, one member may use His gifts that He has and that the other one lacks for the benefit of the other. And all God's people may work together to complement each other in the body of Christ, just as a human body works. So to apply it, I have a question. You know this familiar truth of how Christ is the head. Because He is sitting at God's right hand, He pours heavenly graces to each of His members to use for the other's benefit. You know that familiar truth. I have a question. Do you believe that Christ sits at God's right hand and that He actually does this? He pours heavenly graces upon you. you believe that? you confess that? Do you believe that? Then you will. And you must use those gifts for the sake of the other members of the church. Then you will engage in that prayerful consideration. Difficult, but you will engage in that prayerful consideration. Asking, how does Christ my head want me to use my gifts for the body here at Hope Church. You will not be a moocher, just taking, though receiving is part of being in the body, but also giving. You will not be like a frog on a log, coming to church, sitting in the pew, and then hopping away, disappearing to do your own thing the rest of the time leaving it up to a few office bearers or a few more involved people. Those who believe that Christ has ascended and sits at God's right hand, pouring forth heavenly graces, valuable gifts and benefits to you for the service of each other, and you will use those gifts, not just for yourself, but for the other members of the church. I'm not talking about some spectacular work which is going to be noticed by everyone, There will be earnest prayer, earnest prayer for the other members, hospitality to those in the church who may seem to be on the fringe, a visit to a widow or a widower, 
a hearty witness to your neighbor who might be gathered into the church one day, staying after to give a word, just a one word of encouragement to fellow saints, preparing for societies so that you might give one comment about that which God has revealed to your soul, humbly receiving from others and giving to serve the body. The second specific benefit which the Catechism focuses our attention upon is preservation. Preservation. Since Christ is sitting at God's right hand, the Catechism says, by His power, He defends and preserves us against all enemies. Defends especially refers to His sovereign rule. Governor Whitmer President Biden, the head of the military coup in Myanmar, no ruler can move or conspire except your sovereign Lord Jesus Christ wills it. Rest in that, beloved. In this age when all powers seem to become more and more corrupt, no schismatic, no false teacher, no antichrist and persecutor can attack the church except it be His will. They don't have free reign. Jesus Christ, who is exalted at God's right hand, defends His church by reigning in all the enemies of the church so that they cannot move and they cannot attack, though they do, they cannot attack except He allows them to. In that way, He defends. And He will not suffer you, as individuals or as a church, to be tempted above that you are able, 1 Corinthians 10.13. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it or endure it. And then when a catechism uses the word preserves, it's speaking particularly of the gracious rule inside of our hearts. He sovereignly reigns in all enemies of the church. And then He works also in our hearts by His Spirit to withstand. Never allowing the Spirit to wholly withdraw from us in spite of our failures and falls. Always preserving faith in the seed of regeneration. So that even if church institutes fail and schisms rend and there's apostasy on every side, None, Jesus has said, shall pluck them out of my hand. We need to be reminded of that. In these last days, it seems everyone's scared. And in fear, we react. We rebel. We don't think clearly and objectively. Fear not. Look up. Jesus Christ, remember, sits at God's right hand as head, defending and preserving His people. And that does not lead to apathy or unfaithfulness in our work here below, but it leads to courage. It removes despair and fear. Courageous warfare now and endurance in the work, trusting in Him who is in control even when things seem out of control.
who is in control even when wicked men seem to think they are in control. His will will be done. And then he returns, you see. He is governing all things as the one who sits at God's right hand in order to return and to judge the living and the dead. That return to judge can be spoken both in the future tense and in the present tense. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess it in the future tense. He shall come. From thence, He shall come again to judge the living and the dead. He will. In the future tense, we mean by that coming, His arrival. We mean by that coming when He appears as He will appear to all. We mean His visible physical appearance on the clouds of glory. He will show up. He will come. Matthew 24, 27, As the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. But the Scriptures speak not only of His coming in the future tense, He will come, but the Scriptures speak of Christ's coming also in the present continuous action. He is coming. He not only will come, but His footsteps are heard. He is on His way. Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, I come, literally, I I'm coming. I'm coming quickly. I'm making no delay. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Remember, sitting at God's right hand doesn't mean this passive thing in his physical position of relaxation. It's a figure of speech. And that he is coming makes that clear again. He is working hard to come. He is ruling, defending, preserving, gathering, converting, filling up the cup of iniquity, preparing hearts and all things so that He might come to judge. Again, do you believe that? I call you to believe in the coming Jesus Christ. He is coming. And believers who believe in Jesus' coming do not sit back apathetic, indifferent, shrugging their shoulders, but believers who as a body, remember, are connected to the head, are going to be active as Jesus Christ is active. They're going to be involved in the work that He is doing for His coming. No, not because we think He needs us. He has no need of us. But because we know He has chosen to use us as His instruments, as His tools to bring about the end. We keep abreast, don't we? Observing what is happening in the news, not for our own, for our own sinister, secret desire to find all the wicked things and be entertained by them. No. 
The news and the world and the church world can become that sometimes. For our entertainment. But we observe the news. We observe what's going on in the church so that we can see, we can see for ourselves what is taking place according to Christ's sovereignty to bring about all things. And it must be, we know, that every bit of apostasy, every bit of declining darkness and corruption in this world is for the sake of His coming. That He might bring all things to the end and judge. And I remind you, briefly but pointedly, and I repeat that later on this week in a missions conference, that regarding His second coming to judge the living and the dead, He is especially working to bring the gospel, which we are supposed to be involved in, to all His people. This gospel, Matthew 24, 14, of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. That's the governing principle. That must take place. And only when that takes place will He arrive. That's not just for missionaries to do, and for a minister to do, or for a committee to do. But each member of the church receiving heavenly graces from our head above is to be involved in some way in the support of missions and evangelism for the spread of the gospel into all the world. That Christ may come. He is coming. He is working to come in this way. That he might judge. It's important to notice that when he comes, it's to judge. And it's not to establish a 1,000 year earthly kingdom against both premillennialism and postmillennialism and many other variations of errors regarding the end times. The simple confession of the Apostles' Creed explained by the Catechism answers those errors, rejects those errors. He's coming to judge. Not to establish a 1,000 year kingdom on this earth, but to judge. Not to bring about a Jewish nation, but to judge. He's not working right now to Christianize culture and transform society. But He's working together as people to judge. It's as simple as that. And when He returns, there will be a resurrection. First, of those who have died in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then there will be a resurrection of us who remain alive. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And then there will be a certain kind of resurrection of those who are reprobate, who are not in Christ. John 5.29, they have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And each one in his own body 
will stand before the judge. And there will be a public judgment of each individual in which all our works, both good and evil, will be laid bare before all. The judge will judge according to His strict law. And our works will be manifest. And that is not for us to be afraid of. Though God's people sometimes are tempted to fear, we are not to live in terror of that last judgment. Because there is nothing to be afraid of if we are His people who repent and believe in Him. Oh yes, there is something very fearful and terrifying for those who are impenitently continuing in sin. But not for those who turn to Christ. The main reason it is comforting is because of the identity of the judge. The catechism says, the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all the curse from me. Before He will judge, remember, He has already come to take our judgment. He has already taken the judgment that you and I deserve. Oh yes, we deserve to be told, depart from Me. We deserve to be told, Enter into the judgment, the condemnation that the, that the devils and, and Satan deserve. We deserve that. But the point is that He, Jesus Christ, has already taken that judgment when He came to this earth 2,000 years ago and suffered in our place and obeyed God's law in our place. He has earned for us the right to be declared righteous and to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And He says that to us now, today, to you who repent and believe in Him, you are righteous for Jesus' sake alone, and that verdict can never change. That very same person, the very same person, the Catechism says, the very same person who has already finished the work of earning your righteousness is the judge. And when He judges you, beloved, do you think, on Judgment Day, that He will deny the work He has already done, His perfect work? Do you think He will do something contradictory to the love He has already shown to you by suffering your judgment? No. No. On the basis of His perfect work, He will judge you, His people, as righteous. Worthy not of yourself, but worthy because of Him, of eternal life. And here we need to bring up a prepositional phrase from Scripture and distinguish it from another prepositional phrase in heresy. The biblical phrase is, according to our works. And the heretical phrase, often confused with that, is, on account of our works. Hear the difference, beloved. Those who believe in the federal vision theology, who won't say they do, but will teach you this, 
will bring up these prepositions and confuse the two. You need to know the difference between according to your works and on account of your works. The Bible says everywhere that judgment on the last day will be according to works. That's true. It doesn't say on account of your works. According to your works means consistent with or in agreement with your works, which Jesus Christ has worked in you. Those whom He has justified, He sanctifies. His work of sanctification in your life to produce good works is consistent with His work of justification. In other words, if He has justified you, He will work in you. Holy living. And so when you come before the judgment seat of God, those works that He has worked in you will be consistent. Will be confirming evidence that He has already justified you. And the judgment that He pronounces righteous and worthy of entrance into eternal life is according, consistent with the good works He has also worked in you as part of His saving work. The Bible does not teach on account of works. Because on account, though it sounds similar to according to, means, account means, on your account. On the basis of your works. If you, beloved, are to be judged on the basis of your works in any sense, in any way, your works count against you. For you taint all your works, the best of your works, with sin. And you will be damned on that judgment day. The comfort of the believer is that the same person who has already taken the judgment we deserve will be the judge and He will judge us on account or on the basis of His perfect work alone. Though that judgment will be consistent with, according to the works He has worked and does work in us today. Another comfort is that there will be rewards of grace. Jesus is very clear in His parable of Matthew 25 that we read this morning. That He will turn to His sheep, those for whom He has already taken the judgment that we deserve. He will look at His sheep and He will say to them, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Meaning, prepared for you from election. I've already chosen you from eternity. Inherit the kingdom chosen for you. But he speaks then, at the end in that parable, of an inheritance of heaven where there is the reward of grace. For, he says, I was hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and he took me in, naked and he clothed me. I was sick and he visited me. I was in prison and he came unto me. And you can hear the humility of the sheep 
the elect as we stand before the judgment seat. When, when do we see thee hungered and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee? Their eyes are not looking at their works. They know they're unprofitable servants who deserve nothing. And yet the grace of Jesus Christ is such, it's amazing, that He rewards His sheep according to those works. He has not only enabled us to do those good works, He doesn't only sanctify those good works after we taint them with our sins, but He rewards us according to those works in His grace. Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. Judgment day will be a judgment for our benefit to those in Christ. There will be rewards. And finally, the comfort is justice. Justice of God. Not for my personal vengeance of my personal enemies, but God's justice will be done for the glory of His name. The Catechism says that, points us to that. In all my sorrows and persecutions, I look for Christ, who shall cast all His and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. The child of God is not gleeful about that. He's not delighting in the destruction of enemies. He's not longing for a front seat on Judgment Day. He knows that the wrath of God is indescribably great. And He deserves the same. And yet at the same time, there is a relief that comes when God judges the wicked who do oppress, who do abuse, who do persecute His people here. That's reality. Though the leaders of earthly governments and the leaders of church governments have an obligation, and still do, to do what is just. And they will answer for it before God. Yet, the reality is that too often men and women get away with sin. They do. And justice is not done. Because of great deception and manipulation. And they continue on without consequences for the suffering of God's people. But not only for the suffering of God's people, for the blasphemy of God's holy name, as the world looks on and mocks that sin is left alone, without justice. And so the comfort and the desire of God's people is that one day Jesus will arrive. And He is returning to bring about justice 
Justice again, not for our personal vengeance, but for the glory of God's name. But justice will be at the same time His merciful salvation of His people. Relief from all their persecutors and oppressors. So that together we may bow to the glory of God's name. He sits. He sits at God's right hand. Ruling. And returning. To judge. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, as we close, we return to that primary purpose and goal of all things, which we began with, the goal of Thy glory. We praise Thee for Thy truth and Thy grace, Thy justice and Thy mercy, Thy severe judgment and perfect pardon. We praise Thee for Jesus Christ, our Head, who does pour heavenly graces into us, His body. We're confident that He sovereignly rules over all for the sake of us, the church. We pray, cause us to live looking up with eager anticipation for His return to judge the living and the dead. Remove fear, bring repentance, and strengthen our faith with Thy Word. For the glory, O God, of thy name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hope prchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.